HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Returning to the show is Michael Kadekel. Last time he was here, we discussed the weight and power of the words organic and natural. Who does it include, exclude, how is food brands use language to manipulate buyers' choices, and what and how do we communicate subtly with our consumption choices. But today we're, co- we're talking about capital W, capital T, white trash, deemed the most intriguing book of the 1986 spring cookbook season and the most beautiful document by Harper Lee. White Trash is a collection of Southern recipes and photographs by the late Ernest Matthew Mickler. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. So can you actually just start us off with your initial impressions? Because I actually, to our listeners, I sent this to him in the mail um, <laughs> from Brooklyn to Upper East Side, wherever you live. Yeah. Um, and I, I imagine it's, it's quite something to just come upon. It's not your average cookbook. What, did, what are your initial thoughts? <laughs> uh, it's an interesting document. I think, you know, it's designed to shock. Uh, white trash is obviously a pejorative and we can talk about why and all the historical construction of that uh, later on but it's it's designed to get a reaction and I think I had it I think I, I walked into my apartment and my wife said oh god what is that why would you read that uh, and, and I think that's what people were going for and that's how we, how Michael ended up publishing it with the Jargon Society because initially a number of other publishers turned him down based on the title. Um, but, you know, it is, and we'll talk about this later too, I think. Oh, the, when I saw it, I was almost surprised that it had come out in the 80s. It seemed very ahead of its time in terms of being, it seemed pretty in sync to me with our current trends of 
people being very attuned to and interested in sort of reclaiming uh, folk cooking or, or authentic cooking, mm-hmm. quote unquote. To be defined. To be defined. Folk and authentic. But yes, yeah, so it's a collection of recipes, which now has a foreword by John T. Edge. Um, but yes, a collection of rather casually or poetically written recipes. And then there's also a collection of his photographs. So can you talk a bit about the photographs and maybe a bit of a background for Michaeler? Sure. Uh, so Michaeler grew up in Florida, yeah, um, and he he went to college. Uh, he got a master's, an MFA, and then over several years, he collected these recipes for uh, what he would come to call the White Trash Cookbook. And as he put it, it's a testament to uh, working class life in the South. Um, primarily white, not, not exclusively white. Um, he photographs people in and around the, uh, in and around the South, um, living in, you know, uh, small houses, uh, barely furnished. I mean, I mean, they're really striking photos, uh, and interspersed with the dishes. And then the, as you said, the, the recipes themselves are not at all the way, you know, the sort of formal prose that we come on in a lot of cookbooks the and, and they're not prefaced with stories it's almost like you know how on blogs now you you have this big preface of the story of the recipe and then the recipe itself he sort of collapses those into this very brief um you know then put these ingredients in and do it that's the way my grandma said to do it kind of all in one i didn't even think about that so um that makes me kind of think there's no need for the blog <laughs> <laughs> preface or head note of story before a recipe because I feel like um, with this because they're in this collection you don't really need the story and you get that story through the cooking and so why do you think that's become such a norm now? Uh, I don't know I guess people think the recipe's too boring on its own <laughs> I don't know uh, I mean it, it's a norm it's it's a norm to the extent that it's a joke I think there was a New Yorker uh what's their joke Colin called again joke piece about it that you know it's it's sat, it's satirized now is how common and formulaic mm-hmm. it is that everything has to be lifestyle not mm-hmm. just recipe mm-hmm. and so um Michael actually makes a key distinction in the book between lowercase white trash and capital W capital T yeah. and so what are the differences yeah according to him I believe he says uh the main difference is manners that capital W, capital T, uh, something about makes the bed, doesn't sit on the bed when it's made, <laughs> uh, takes their hat off, treats people with respect. Uh, you, you know, a lot of what he's doing is about, I guess, what we would now call reclaiming or, or reappropriating a slur as, I don't even know if he goes so far as saying it's a badge of honor, but, it, but it's a dignified thing to be. Um, which he seems to delineate through the capital letters. I think it's really interesting because he's able to reclaim or reappropriate um, A, so easily and also with great success, right? I, I feel like people, um, it, it got picked up by Jargon and then Tensby Press and people kind of loved this idea of reclaiming white trash and how come um, it's not so easy to do that with other labels? Well, I wonder... If it's not, though, it, it seems like something that a lot of people uh, 
and that's why I said I thought the book was a little ahead of its time. It seems like there are a lot of um, groups that that use terms now that are were once considered slurs and may still be considered slurs if said by the you know the the wrong people. Uh, but I think white trash would also still be considered a slur by the wrong people. I don't think it's become a normalized term. It's still very controversial, and for very good reason. Um, the book by Nancy Eisenberg that just came out a couple of years ago uh, about the history of inequality in society is called White Trash, and she's very pointed about the way that it's been used as a slur that's both racist, uh, that discriminates against black people, and also against the people, the, the white people that it's used against, the idea of trashy people, that people could be garbage. And so, yes, he was able to reappropriate and kind of fluidly use this moniker, but who is allowed to use it, um, who is not, and what does using it say about you or the person you were talking with? I don't, doesn't, not sure it's even my decision. <laughs> it was, uh, I don't think I can say who can use it, uh, but I definitely think that if he had not grown up in the community that he was writing about and noted, I think it was very important that he established that he had a personal connection to it. That was part of establishing his authority to talk on the subject. If he had just said, I'm this, you know, if he had taken it from a more, from the perspective of, say, a northern person interested, a northern person with money interested in this way of living, um, I think it would have been seen as, and may well have been more condescending and, mm -hmm. and fetishizing almost. Mm -hmm. This kind of reminds me um, of someone like Rick Bayless, who I, would, I haven't read any, if he has any cookbooks, but um, I would imagine when someone is cooking a cuisine that's not of their culture, they spend a lot of the intro saying, I went to culinary school or I went to Mexico to study this and blah, blah, blah. And that, thus that makes me qualified to have adopted this um, cuisine. And I feel like that's not entirely what's not happening here as well. Like I feel like, like you were talking about how Michler um, talks about how he had grown up in the South and is able to talk about these recipes because they are from his home and yeah, do you feel like those two are in conversation with each other a bit? Yeah, I think that they're both methods of establishing authority. And I think you're totally right that uh, the way we talk about culture, being part of or identifying with a culture gives you a certain ethos uh, to speak about that culture. I also think it affects the way that you can speak about a culture, though. I think that he takes a liberty to speak about... Um, working class whites in, you know, with a broad brush in a lighthearted way that could be seen as poking fun at times uh, in a way that I think, yeah, I think his authority to do that comes in large part, or, or he certainly seems to, seems to have seen the need to establish that through saying, these are my people. I know this. Mm -hmm. So we kind of breezed over um, reclamation can for just leveling the playing field. Can we define what um, reclamation means? It seems a bit obvious, but um, what that means in this context and maybe in the food context. Um, and why is it so important for someone who's white living in the South to feel proud about XYZ that they reclaim? So I think it's 
very simply taking a slur and making it not a slur. Uh, you know, there's a long, there's a long, long history of people taking things that were used as insults uh, and turning them into their name. Everything from, uh, you know, the Whig Party was that that was an insult, and then people started going by the Whig Party. Uh, a lot of people, but for things like ethnic slurs and racist slurs, I think a lot of people see a power in doing that. And it puts the conversation on their terms rather than just saying, no, don't call me that. It's like, okay, what, you know, mm-hmm. sure. Ha- have you seen the new, uh, I feel like I asked you this on last um, episode, but have you seen the new season of Chef's Table? I haven't. Okay. So there's um, this one episode about this chef who grew up in Georgia and then left, I think, to go to New York City to become a chef. And then she realizes she wants to come back home and cook the foods of her childhood and blah, blah, blah. But it's really talking about um, reclaiming what what even quote-unquote Southern food is. And I feel like um, John T. Edge said this on the Gravy podcast, talking about this book, but this book is not in opposition to quote-unquote black cooking, nor white cooking, nor is it really in opposition to soul food, but it's kind of its own niche cuisine. And can you talk a bit about the differences between those different ones and where this one sits in it all? And it's an interesting question because he, I mean, and I'm not sure I totally buy it because Michler even has a line in that book where he refers to soul food as the darker cousin. Mm-hmm of white trash cooking. I think he sees them, and, and I'm not sure if that's Michler or the introduction to it, but um, he, th- there, I think it is, for historical reasons, difficult to talk about white trash without either the slur or the way that Michler's applied it to the food without talking about racism against black people, the entire, I mean, the origins of the slur often refer to putting white people in the context of the um, black people that they lived around. So there's a a few different theories um, and a few different usages of the term, but it, it either means that it's highlighting something deficient about these white people because they're exhibiting, they were exhibiting traits that uh, racist society more commonly associated with black people. And so, so calling them white trash was casting them out of white society. Mm-hmm. Um, or at times it could refer to a literal mixing, that these were white trash in part because they were, they were not slaveholders, uh, they were not wealthy, they, which meant that they were living among um, very closely with black people in the South. And that had a somehow a contaminating effect. So while there certainly is overlap in the cultures and much of what we call Southern food uh, is food that was invented by often enslaved people um, and certainly by black people. And, there, and there's a tremendous amount of sharing and cultural fusion. I think it's a bit disin not disingenuous, uh, but I, I think it misses some of the historical context to say that one can exi- that this can exist without referencing a history of black racism. Yeah. 
So back to the recipes. Um, <laughs> so we were talking a bit about how, um, whereas blogs need the story to contextualize the recipe, in this book it's, it's kind of recipe after recipe after recipe. And the way that it's um, organized, it feels like one person contributed one recipe and then he got maybe five or six other people to provide their variations on it, which I think in its own way constructs a story um, and a history, a little history of each recipe. Um, so these recipes are recipes that people are familiar with, but also some readers may have never um, grown up with these foods or never cooked these. And so what was, um, wh what was its role, this book? Was it actually used for cooking or is it more kind of like a travelogue? Hmm. You could have, probably have said what a lot of cookbooks. I, I know, right? That's <laughs> my, my thing. How much are they actually used mm -hmm. for cooking? Uh, you know, this is maybe a cop-out answer, but I'm sure, sure it varied by person. Uh, these recipes are, as that gravy podcast pointed out, very intentionally inelegant. I would imagine that people used them in part out of a, you know, probably for certain occasions. I'm sure there were certain recipes that people would go in and try. Um, but I have to think that considering that most of the reviews I read of this book spent a lot of their time talking about the tone of the writing and the photographs, I really don't think it was the, oh, this is delicious food that was really grabbing most people. I think it was the, this is an interesting piece of literature. This is an interesting artifact and document mm -hmm. of rural Southern life. The main thing I kept seeing it uh, compared to was Aggie's book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, which was a uh, Depression-era document of rural, poor rural Southern life. So that this was, uh, and I think even the foreword references that, this is was seen by many, I think, as a window into a little discussed American subculture, not not so much a great innovation in, in food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially given that he himself um, was an artist and... Mm -hmm. It feels like these recipes are not unlike the photographs in this book. Like, they feel very much just like another flexing of a different creative muscle. Yeah, I, I, that's fair. And so, should this have a modern-day equivalent? Um, what would need to happen to have kind of like an ambrosia salad renaissance today? <laughs> but again, I think the modern-day equivalent is not necessarily the type of food. I think the modern day equivalent is, and I just, you know, I took a quick look at what are some of the best selling cookbooks uh, or what are the recommended cookbooks. And they have titles like Prairie, the Prairie Homestead Cookbook uh, or Mediterranean Cooking, or they all have simple in them. I mean, a lot of them are about the keto diet, but. Um, which is also simple eating. Which is also simple eating. Uh, there's one. Uh, cookbook recommended to cook the American cookie that's been loved for generations. One's called A Celebration of Home Cooking. Uh, Carla Hall's Soul Food Cookbook. Uh, sweet and Decadent Baking for Different Occasions. Like, it's, it is in the air. The theme is come home, find your roots or find our roots and make this and it'll be good for you because it's old and it's traditional and maybe you don't need to worry about whether it's good for you anyway. Mm -hmm. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. 
Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni, and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, my friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Forever Cheese sources the highest quality and most unique cheeses and other products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia, and imports them to the United States, many under the Mitika brand. If it's Mitika, it's got to be incredible. Learn more at forevercheese.com. So um, let's get into the quote of uh, Harper Lee's thoughts on this book. Um, she wrote this beautiful prosaic uh, quote on this book, and it's, I'm just going to read it to you. Um, I have never seen a sociological document of such beauty. The photographs alone are shattering. I shall treasure it always, now that it's harder than ever to identify the genuine article on site. We've long needed something other than the ballot box to remind us of their presence. Mm. White trash cooking is a beautiful testament to a stubborn people of proud and poignant heritage. And so two things especially of note to me in the Harper Lee quote is um, she identifies in Meichler this earnestness and also um, how this book's earnestness is a way of reminding us that these quote unquote there or these people are more than just a ballot box. So um, what, what were your initial thoughts before we get into well, I'm interested in what she means by the ballot box. Is she talking about political exploitation of mm-hmm. rural whites by often elite Southern Democrats, uh, especially coming out of the 60s and 70s into the 80s uh, when Michael's writing? Or is she in talking about the actual political momentum on the ground there and, and you know the the increasing need to express identity through politics mm-hmm. um, and it, you asked about how it relates to today too right mm-hmm. because the way I read it which I had not even seen that but um, I was thinking about how it's so easy to group um, a group that you do not affiliate with into um, a blanket category and mm. so this is because we get such an intimate window into these people's lives, it's like a way to consider them human and, and see them as much more than just, you know, a line on a piece of paper. That's right. Um, and I think, I mean, though what's interesting is that, as, in the, as is the case now, so many of the attempts to understand uh, working class whites as human comes after the massive political defeat. I mean, this is the 2016 story, right? After... Uh, Donald Trump wins and everybody blames working class whites for it, even though that's not really borne out in the numbers. Uh, it sales soar of books like Hillbilly Elegy or uh, Strangers in Their Own Land, right? These books where people are trying to, they're helping us understand these people. And it's interesting because it's at, le- at once, it does familiarize, but it also alienates them uh, in the sense that it introduces you to people, but it also says that these are people who need to be introduced. Like, you do need this this window 
onto them because you don't know who they are. So it, yeah, it normalizes them and makes them and others others them at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the other thing that I was maybe I misread Harper Lee's quote, but I was no, really I taken with her admiration of his earnestness throughout this book and I mm. think it's so hard to be and this is in the 80s right and so today I feel like it's so hard to be earnest without being cynical or sarcastic <laughs> and make a successful product from that and so which is why I think this book is so strangely successful or successfully strange hmm. um, did you get that same kind of true authentic to his self earnestness <laughs> uh, I think so and I think there are a lot of people looking for authenticity today uh authentic's a hot word i mean it's been a hot word for a while but he used that word actually in an interview with uh with the new york times i think he called it he called white trash cooking authentic people's food uh which seems to apply that there are imply that there are people who are not authentic i guess uh and I think it's sort of a strange construction, but I think it's a construction we use a lot today that we're eating, oh, you're getting the authentic food of this culture or the, or the authentic food of this culture or uh, we're eating what real people eat, right? Like these are, these are things you hear tossed around. So I think you're right that, that his earnestness and lack of cynicism is attractive to people. Uh, at the same time as his seeming separateness from without being alienated from much of that culture. I mean, he's also somebody um, who spent much of his adult life in uh, gay communities in San Francisco, right? Like he was not, the reason he's able to do this is also because he's not really in the fold of the life style that he's documenting. So he is when it's useful for his ethos, not not saying like he's a, a huckster, but but people are complex and people have different identities and this identity that identity is useful for being an authority but it's also necessary for him to have removed to be the the one who do, who documents it right he's like the artist in exile who yeah. like misses home um but is like glad to be out of it as well right and can be an ambassador mm. to other people mm-hmm. on its behalf yeah and so do you feel like we were talking about authentic and before this interview, um, folk. And so how do those two play together and maybe they don't play together and what do they mean? Um, what does it mean to be folk? What does it mean to be, what did uh, Michael mean when he was saying, uh, these are authentic people? Cause I, I'm just pushing on this a little bit more. What do you think? Uh, what do I think they mean in an objective sense or what do I think they mean to the people who use them? Interesting. I, I think, what did Michael wish, wish to convey by um, qualifying the people included as authentic? And what would it mean to have an inauthentic person included in this book? I think it... I mean, I don't think there's a lot of meaning to the, to the phrase. What he's trying to say, I would guess is something to do with money, something to do with rootedness in place, something to do with humility and 
something being passed down. I think there's an idea that um, there's the folk way, right? And this is where the, our term food ways that gets tossed around a lot in the food studies world comes from. Uh, as opposed to the sort of mass popular culture that exists in the realm of McDonald's and today you might say even like Whole Foods. Um, and this is something that's accessible to, you know, there's, and there's a million words for it, whether we call them real people or everyday people or normal people, just that the idea that there is some group of people who are not trying to impress anybody and are not connoisseurs and are just, you know, they go to work in the morning and they come home at night and they just have food on the table and this is what they eat. And it's good and they're about family. And, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, because I think whenever you're saying authentic or folk or, or real, I think these are all related words. I think it's very similar to natural as we were talking about last time we were together. I think it's, you're always talking about what you think is normal there. And so hearing people talk about that is a way to, you know, I think he's reclaiming normalcy for, for these people. And so how would you define foodways in this context? And also what constitutes capital W, capital, capital T, white trash foodways? Uh, again, I think that can only be said uh, from the perspective of Michler, right? I don't think... There is a degree to which it is as much trivializing to people, in which it trivializes people as much as it does, as much as it pays them homage to say that this is a, you know, these people eat this way. Uh, this is the tradition of food in this place. There may be some tradition of food in that place, but it's gonna vary by person, it's gonna vary by day, it's gonna vary by year. And to say that certain people have a, that there's a homogeneity to how people eat or live or do anything is almost to say that there are people without history, like that there are people who are not capable of change in the way that other people are and so it almost makes them these weird non-human outcasts all over again mm -hmm. so I'm very wary of any time someone starts speaking about authenticity or folk culture because it seems to it's unclear what it's being cast against uh, in a, any kind of rigorous way even his own like capital W capital T if some people are poor but have manners, does that mean that some people are poor and rude? Like, who is he? Is he being facetious there? Is he accepting that there is a, a small w, small t, white trash? Um, is he claiming some kind of peoplehood for them, which is why it has to be capitalized? Like, it's it's a very interesting move. I'm not 100% sure what he means by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in kind of the hubbub of all his fame with this book, he was brought on The Letterman Show, mm -hmm. and he, I believe he cooked um, chicken feet for David Letterman, and 
uh, he refused, uh, Letter- Letterman refused to eat it and was, you know, played the whole gag of like, oh, that's disgusting. I would never eat that. And so what do you think that ultimately did? I think it exoticizes the food. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it totally exoticizes the food. And and it's weird because, but, and it's also interesting because Michael's clearly making a choice to choose chicken feet on the show. Like, I would be interested, I mean, I don't know what the Letterman producers asked him to do. Uh, but, yeah, it is an interesting setup. Because, mm-hmm. as you pointed out also before we were talking, you know, this whole distinction between these small isolated people and the big bad world out there seems to also collapse (laughs) on the fact that so much of this food includes processed the processed products of national and international brands one of his photos has a has a canister of morton salts in it I have the exact same canister <laughs> in my little New York City pantry. You know, like, they're, these are not just things that are about difference. These are also foods that are about, the, yeah, yeah, where people are using things that, that are very common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a common measurement in this book where it's like one sleeve of Ritz crackers <laughs> or... Um, yeah, just stuff that is very bought. And we were talking a bit about this before, and we could reiterate maybe how these are to them seen as natural foods or how your grandma would make them. And so how is this at odds with what we now understand as organic or natural or, yeah. Well, this again gets to the problem of uh, of talk, talking about what our grandmas and great-grandmas would make because, well, whose grandma and our grandmas used lots of processed food. They loved processed food. Processed food was great. It was a break from the back-breaking, deeply dangerous labor uh, that they had to do before. And again, I just fell into the generalization again. Some grandmas, some grandmothers, uh, who were of course not defined by the fact that they were to later have children who had children, uh, did cook varying degrees of processed food. So I think that, again, passing it up but it also does point to some of the historic specificity of these recipes right if these are passed down family recipes fine but the fact that they have Ritz crackers in them certainly means that they've only been passed down as long as Ritz has existed so at what you know at what point does in the life cycle of a food does it become traditional is it after it's been around for one generation two generations like what this is also why these words get so messy because they seem to act as if history started I don't know when we were born or mm-hmm. something it's almost like you wouldn't even have to wait for it to be passed down like you could just have it be yeah. contemporaneous with yeah, your grandmother right. it could be uh, it could be but then it's more of a family tradition mm. maybe I don't know I don't know or you get something like uh, poutine in Quebec which is this traditional food that was like invented by one company in the 60s you know like mm-hmm. these these things the the lines between commercial foods and family recipes and community traditions are very blurry mm-hmm. speaking of um would you like to read a recipe from this book? <laughs> sure we'll give you some time to sort through because some of them are really funny but um, Oh, there's so many. <laughs> Maybe we could choose a brief one. 
or a long one. Some <laughs> of them are just so detailed, like the, the gator ones. How about, um, you know, I was very taken by his recipe for possum. Ooh, okay. But I need to find it. And I'm still looking. You know, the cornbread, never fail baked chicken, chicken stew, chicken asparagus pie, spaghetti, liver haters, chicken livers. Uh, here we go. Mama Layla's hand-me-down oven-baked possum. <laughs> because with the language oven-baked, that makes me think of shake-and-bake or, you know, anything processed. And so it's funny to have that in tandem with possum. Hmm. Yeah. And again, right, it's it's normalizing it, but it's not. And, and this is one of the most kind of vicious stereotypes, right? We, we often exoticize people by what they eat and the idea that there are people who, oh, they, you know, they eat squirrel or they eat possum. And it's like, okay, and, <laughs> and we, and we take animals called cows and put them into warehouses and then, uh, execute them on mass and grind them up and make it into a ball. And we think that's normal. Like who cares? It's a hamburger. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mama Layla's hand-me-down oven-baked possum. After you kill the possum, be careful not to let him get away. While you're talking and planning how you're going to eat him, eat him, he's going to be slipping right from under your nose. All he was doing was playing possum. Skin him and clean him before you go another foot. Then the mess is gone and he won't get away. When you get him home, rub salt and pepper all over his body, then run a mixture of vinegar and brown sugar over the salt and pepper. Wrap up the possum in a good baking pan and let it stand in the refrigerator overnight. Next morning, put the pan and let it stand in the refrigerator. Oh, sorry. The next morning, put the pan with the possum still in it, hopefully, (laughs) on top of the stove. Add two or three spoons of bacon fat and sear them on all sides. Then add chopped onion, two of them. Put in the oven and bake for one hour at 350 degrees. Pull him out and roll him over, and now you can add your sweet potatoes. Just surround him with him. I'm not putting on an accent. It's apostrophe E-M. Put back in the oven and bake for another one and a half hours or until he is tender and juicy. Possum is tender and mild regardless of what other people think, Mama Layla say. But you've got to watch him because they'll slip away. And see, that's like this beautiful example of is it a recipe? Is it a story? Is it is the main point here for somebody to bake possum or is it to talk about his relationship with Mama Layla uh, and the relationship with wildlife in uh, growing up. And does there have to be a distinction there, right? Like it is this wonderful blending of genres Mm -hmm. and it's done very subtly and combined in a way that I think is not always obvious. uh, And in a way that many cookbook authors don't do now, I think, people now we often highlight the the story more but it's and it it has to be in the book but it's not in the recipe and that i think he collapses that distinction really nicely Mm -hmm. can we get one more and that's how we'll end because they're just so beautiful (laughs) sure why don't i just flip to a random one and sure see how let the face decide lita's fancy eggs and cheese pie Four whole eggs, one cup of chopped parsley, one cup of Swiss cheese, grated, 
half a teaspoon of nutmeg, half a pint of whipping cream, one unbanked nine-inch pie shell. So we're starting off a little more traditional there. Mix eggs, cream, nutmeg, salt, and pepper. Pour into pie shell that has been baked for five minutes at 400 degrees. Sprinkle in cheese and parsley and bake for 25 minutes at 350 degrees or until brown on top. Mrs. DeWald says, this ain't our dessert. It's for a light supper or brunch. End quote. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.